Well, I have been distracted this week between the two sermons and trying not to confuse them because I'm excited about both. And my excitement about both in getting this morning is as I put the final touch on it, I forgot one piece of my process. That's why I'm holding these. Normally I take the 12 points and push it up to 14 points so I can see it without my reading glasses. So if you see me put this on, it's because I want to make sure I'm telling you what I had planned to tell you. This passage from 1 Peter, I chose it about worship because it is two things. One, it is a pathway to that intimate coming to Christ in worship. But one of the things that proper English does not have is a plural you. Now, if we were back in Georgia, we would just have y'all in there. Y'all come to him. That we come as, a, as we come as a community. That we're not able sometimes, and I think it hurts us, to not have that sense of community because that's what this is all about in this passage. So when you, we start in verse 1 for the purpose As you come to him. When we gather to worship, we should be coming expecting to be with Jesus. Coming expecting to be with our Redeemer, with our Savior. That's what it should be all about. We should not come as spectators, but as people who love him, who are coming together. Because what are all the images of heaven? They are uncountable peoples from all these languages and nations that are there worshiping together. When I was in England, um, in Ely, next to London, in the church that was sponsoring Presbytery and this conference, they have people from 35 nations that, that worship together in English. And that is one of the things that when we come together in a world where the globe is mixing languages and peoples to know how to have places where they can worship. I knew um, there's a church in Charlottesville, Virginia, where the University of Virginia is, and they made a decision that they were going to try. I never really heard how it worked out. But in their slides for their, their songs, you know, the first one was in English, then Spanish, then Chinese, and I forget what the fourth language was. But they were going to try that because they wanted to do what a lot of churches are doing. It's not like, okay, you have your language group, you're over there. You have your ethnic group, you're over there. No, they were making them come together. And sometimes it really is awkward. Because if you are in some churches and someone stands up and prays in Swahili, because that's the language of their heart, can you feel comfortable and thankful that God is using that person in that service? But worship needs to be seen as coming to him. And coming to him in all the diversity that we might bring. Now, admittedly, you know, here in the Highlands, you know, we have people who speak different languages sometimes at home. 
And we have English as what missionaries call a trade language. In other words, it's a common language that a lot of people know. But notice how he is presented when we're coming to him. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. See, our worship needs to be about coming to the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. That the Trinity is the way God has existed eternally. But we come to worship through Christ to get to the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, if you saw the Facebook post I put up for this sermon, you saw stone walls, a stone church. You know, we live in an area where there are all kinds of stone. And so to me, when you are in an area where the language of Scripture is just shouting at you from all over, that it's God's plan, I'm laying in Zion a cornerstone. That stone that everything else is going to be measured off of. That's going to set the, the, the levelness. You know, it doesn't tell you how far or how big it's going to be, but it's there as it is, and it's precious. But notice what it says. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, we're going to talk about the lack of belief later on in the sermon. So, as we think about this idea in verse 4 of coming to him is the purpose that we're coming to worship. Now, I want us to look at verse 1 now in terms of what I think of as the preparation, what we might think of as Saturday work. So put away or lay aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy, and all slander. Now, I would not get too excited about saying, okay, the three alls are more important than the other two. I don't think that's what's going on here. But it does give an emphasis. It is, it is there. And I'm going to talk about each one of these five things in a moment. But one of the things that I want you to think about is that these five things that we're to lay aside represent the 6th, the ninth, and the 10th commandments. You know, sometimes people wonder, why, doesn't they, why don't they use the commandments in the New Testament? Well, one of the things that they do is they describe them, they help us to understand them, and get them into our heart, because each one of these words, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, are all sins of the heart. They're all sins that can be hidden. Put away all malice. That, depending upon the dictionary you look at, has to do with the desire to do harm and evil towards someone. We live in a world where malice is something that 
Oftentimes, people will not admit, but it's in their heart. It's in their attitude towards the other, the other kind of people, people not like us. One of the things about living here that I'm doing is trying to understand my family and where it came from. You know, did we come over... It's not really coming over, it's getting formed. It's having people who are identified. But did we come with the Vikings? Did we come with the Irish? Did we come with leftover picks? I mean, how did the McFarlands get formed? The people from a far land. I mean, see, even in my name it says I'm a migrant. That I'm a son of a far land. And I think I have to be careful that as I research and think about it, you know, I remember reading one strain of history that it's like, that's a really neat strain because it says we're Celtics, we're not Saxons. We were here first before they came. We came from here, not from there. Rather than being thankful, as we get down to verse 10, that we have received mercy, as I study about my, my clan, who were supposedly early adopters of the Reformation doctrines, why at the same time then were we disbanded because we were such thugs and stealing our neighbor's cattle and, and sheep? I mean, it's like, okay, we were involved in the first part of the Jacobite thing, but then we were dissolved, so we weren't even a part around for the second and third part. Doing away with malice. Deceit. Hypocrisy. Envy. Now envy, in dealing with the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, means wanting other things, wanting other people, being dissatisfied. And isn't it that creation of dissatisfaction that is what fuels our service economy, what fuels our sales? Because we want to make people dissatisfied. We offer all of these different varieties of foods and entertainments and destinations but how many times do we make decisions based out of envy? So we're to put those away. I think what I am going to try to do is, when I call it our Saturday work, is I'm going to look at my life, I'm going to look at my heart, I'm going to look at the week, and I'm going to use these five things representing three of the commandments to examine my heart. Because I'm somebody who consumes a lot of news, and sometimes it just, you know, gets me wound up. But we know how to look good. You know, and not to have deceit and hypocrisy in my life, not to envy, you know. One of the things about when I go driving around here and other places is 
that when I was growing up, in uh, my last year of high school was in Southern California in 1966-1967. That was kind of in the United States the beginning of both muscle cars and a tremendous line of Jaguar XKEs that were in Southern California that were just what everybody was supposed to want. The thing was, back then, they weren't as seemingly, to me, outrageously expensive. And when I'm on my way to act attire, sometimes I'll never know when I'm going to get passed. I got passed one day by three lotuses. And I go, man, I've never driven a lotus. I thought, you know, that, wow. It's so easy to be enticed by things, to envy. You know, sometimes people in family groups can envy the success of somebody else's children or grandchildren. So oh, I wish my kid would have gotten into that school, or I wish they would have gone into that profession. Except when you get on and your children are starting to turn 40 and you look at their lives and you are thankful for their faithfulness to God thankful for their faithfulness within their marriages and to their children, no matter what the difficulties are in terms of those phrases that in the American ceremony, at least, it's for better, for worse, richer, poor, sickness, and in health. We all want better, healthy, rich. But that's not what we always get. So we have to be careful not to envy because it is so easy in this culture to envy. It says in verse 2, like newborn infants, long for the spiritual milk. In other words, long for the word of God. That by it you may grow into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Give you this simple illustration of an infant. To long for that milk so that you might grow up into salvation. For all of us, no matter what our age is, to know that we are growing up into our salvation, that it is a constant growth. That it's not until we enter glory that we arrive. That God is always going to be working with us. Now, we've looked at the purpose as you come to him, The preparation to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, evil, and slander. But now I want us to look at the privileges that we have as worshipers as we come together. And as I said in my reading, that verse 10 is a verse that just as I, thinking about this, and all of the wonder of this passage, because there's a lot of things that are really just rich in their illustrations. But this is what touched my heart. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When they show pictures of migrants in boats that are overcrowded, men, women, children, fathers and mothers, older people, infants, trying to find a new home, willing to give up whatever security they, they, they have given up to come get on a boat and come places. 
Now in the United States, they come and walk across the border, or they come on a tourist visa or a student visa. Or There's all kinds of ways people give up their identity to go someplace to find another identity in terms of community and jobs and care and things like that. But see, as God's people, we need to be able to say, once you were not a people, without God's grace, I, I was nothing. No matter what my family heritage might have been, once you were not a people. See, unless we are willing to accept that and understand that, the next part, but now you are God's people. Whatever your background, whatever your situation. Now, one of the things that we think we know about when Peter wrote and Paul in the first century was that we believe that half the church were slaves. That means that they were uprooted from wherever they got conquered and they were brought and sold and traded and moved around. But what God is saying to all of us, whether they were slaves, whether they were free, whether they're in their homeland or they're someplace else, but now you are God's people. That's where our identity is, young or old. Now you are my people. When I think about the despair that is driving the suicide rates up in a lot of countries, for a lot of reasons, we believe. There was a little newspaper article in between two weekends where we had celebrity suicides on both ends of the week. But it was in New York City, there is a 25% increase in the death of cabbies by suicide because Uber is changing their world. They are in despair because the world that they thought was going to be theirs is no longer theirs. We are going to have more and more people disrupted in their works, in their lives, by things that we can't even see yet. So to have something like this as part of your resilience, part of what makes you who you are, young or old, but now you are God's people. I have missionary friends that I follow on Facebook that don't talk a lot about their ministry. But they are trying to deal at the beginning of the sources of sex trafficking. I mean, can you imagine missionaries saying our, our ministry is to get women out of the sex trade, our ministry is to help them stop being taken away from their families and their homes to other things through lies and all of that. The churches are dealing with something like that, but what happens when you rescue that woman? Her identity has been so twisted. And to be able to give her the gospel and say in a verse like this, now you are God's people. And no matter what your sinful background is, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
More and more people are going to come to salvation, come into the church out of very messy and sinful backgrounds that have been destructive, that are dysfunctional, that we're not sure what to say because we don't know who's going to come. But we have to be willing to say, if God shows mercy to that person, they are our brother and sister in Christ. Because we have received mercy, no matter what, you know, whether you grew up in the church or you grew up on the street, whether you grew up in a home or you grew up in a system, all of us have received his mercy. Mercy, that's the big thing. Underneath that, let's look at some of the other things that are here. Verse 5, you yourselves are living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Think of that. God is taking his people and building them up into a spiritual house because of his grace. We are becoming like Christ. To be a holy priesthood. Later on in verse 9, it talks about being a royal priesthood. We are able, as worshipers, to go into the very present, to go in the holy of holies, that we are able to go there because of Jesus Christ, that we together are both a holy and a royal priesthood. See, that's the priesthood of Christ. Aaron's tribe, his clan, the Levites, they were priests. They did not have royal. But Christ entered the holy place of God. Notice what it says at the end of there. To offer spiritual sacrifices (coughs) acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, when I come into his presence, it's not because I am worthy. It's because Christ is worthy and I come in Christ. I offer up those spiritual sacrifices as a worshiper of God through Christ to the Father, through the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the things that I want to make clear, because you could say, oh, Pastor Fred, what about chapter 1? Where in chapter 1, Verse 5, it says, But as he who called you is holy, you also will be holy in all your conduct, conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. See, the Bible doesn't play holiness and mercy off of each other. We've experienced God's mercy because of Christ. We can be called holy because of Christ. He tells us all kinds of things about himself. And, and we, because I think it is a, a modern, I won't use the word postmodern, but it's a modern problem that we want to reduce everything down to one phrase. We want to reduce it down in the United States. We want to reduce it down to a bumper sticker. You know, today we would say we want to reduce it down to a tweet. God is more complicated than that. He reveals himself as both holy and merciful. Think about that to people who have seemingly lost so much for God to say, I am a holy God and I am merciful and I can bring you into my place. Verse 9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Look at all those phrases that he gives us to hang on to if we might despair or if our circumstances changes that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people. Now what's going on there? All of those are collective. A nation, a people. Being together in worship is one of the most awesome things that he gives for us to do. And we cannot turn it into a spectator. We can't turn spectacle. We can't turn it into being about me. It has to be about him. Verse 7 says, So the honor is for those who believe. And this is where he tells us things that should haunt us about people that we love. That we should pray for them. That they might believe. For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Do you see how the word of God is tied up in all of this? That there are those who don't believe that we need to go out and reach, that we need to evangelize, that we need to love. My uh, copy of Rosaria, right? What? Butterfield. No, but her first name is Rosaria Butterfield. Anyway, she's an English teacher now at Grove City, I think. But anyway, she writes about radical hospitality in inviting your neighbors. And one day in her neighborhood, this neighbor that she and all the other neighbors had loved, all of a sudden, the DEA is there. Crime tape in their neighborhood. Their friend that they had had into their living room and had had at neighborhood meals and things like that was in fact a meth dealer. Not just a dealer, a producer. And if any of you have read stories, because we live in an area where there are neighbors like that, you know that meth explosions can be very deadly and destructive. But what she's saying is, we have to love our neighbor even if we don't really know who they are because how many of us really know who people are that are our neighbors? You know, she has this journey of a stranger becomes a neighbor, a neighbor who becomes a Christian, part of the family of God. And all the things that were there Come tonight and you'll hear four things from Romans 5 about what we were before the cross. But that's the only tease I'll give you for tonight. So I want to close by going back to verse 10 and then to verse 4. For once you all were not a people, but now you all are God's people. 
That is our fundamental and basic identity that should motivate us, challenge us. Once you had not received mercy. But, but see, you need to hear this, that no matter what the world deals you, but now you have received mercy, and that is the forgiveness, acceptance, adoption, all those things that come with being in Christ. And that is because of verse 4. As you come to him. Let me pray before we sing our final song. Father, I thank you for the words here that you have given to us. Did you give us through Peter, that man who stumbled and fell so many times, but yet you used him in a mighty way. And he, of all people, would understand your mercy. Father, I pray that every man and woman and child, boy or girl here, would have understood that they have now received God's mercy. No matter how in their hearts or their lives they might have messed up, no matter where the doubts are that they might be moved into the light of the gospel, And so, Father, I thank you for this opportunity that you give us together to come weekly and to worship you because you are the cornerstone, the chosen stone. And we are those living stones that you are using to build up into a spiritual house so that we may offer spiritual sacrifices to you. Jesus, we thank you for this ministry as priests, both royal and holy, We thank you that we can come and we say in Jesus' name, amen.